Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Paul Anderson is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations. It's the relatively new show here at WERU where we explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from the economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites and probe deeply into the complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. Welcome. We're about to engage in a heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Paul Anderson. I'm the director of the Maine Sea Grant Program. It's my pleasure to be sitting here in for Natalie Sprinkle, who is your uh, regular host. I hope you can stay with us for this next hour on Coastal Conversations. Our topic today is uh, ocean observing and marine science here in the Gulf of Maine. Lots of activity that's been going on in this respect for the last um, several decades and a lot of really exciting technology, engineering, science, and uh, uh, change happening in our Gulf right here on the coast. And I hope you can stay with us to uh, join me and my guests and uh, talk about this issue. I have a couple of guests here in the studio with me and a couple on the phone, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, um, perhaps starting with you, Bob. Hi, Bob uh, Hi, Paul. Oops. Oh. Got two Bobs. Go ahead, Bob Stenick. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, Bob Stenick. Um, I'm a, a professor in the School of Marine Sciences and study uh, uh, marine ecosystems on the coast of Maine. Thanks, Bob. Let's stay on the phones and see if we have Damien there. Hi, Paul. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Uh, my name is Damien Brady. I'm also a professor in the School of Marine Sciences down at the Darling Marine Center. Great. In the studio. Bob? Uh, hi, Paul. I'm, I'm Bob Fleming. Uh, I work with the buoy program, the Fiscal Oceanography Group at the University of Maine, and uh, I, I uh, basically help keep the buoys operational in the Gulf. Great. And finally, David? Yeah, I'm David Townsend. I also am a professor of oceanography at the University of Maine, and I'm based in Orono. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for being with us, uh, Damien and Bob, on the phone. And I'll just give the two phone guests the heads up that you're going to have to give me audible cues when you want to join into the conversation. And, and feel free to chime in as you can, and uh, and we'll we'll see how we can uh, help to inform and, and uh, educate our listeners and then engage them later in the hour about some of their questions about what we're doing in this regard. I'll just acknowledge up front that ocean and marine science community – on the planet really is a very diverse and interdisciplinary group 
a lot of men and women, really smart folks who are paying attention to our oceans from the uh, biological and physical oceanography perspectives as well as the engineering and technology. And uh, there's a great deal of diversity here in Maine as well, other institutions that are playing along. We happen to have a cross-section here today of... um, Frankly, white men from the University of Maine, and that's okay. These are uh, these are folks that I have uh, relationships with, and I was able to get them to come in and, and join us here uh, in the studio. So I, I hope to um, acknowledge that certainly there's other partner institutions here along the coast who are also working in this arena. I think our outline today. Let's uh, we're going to hear a bit about the technology. Um, what are these things that we put in the water? doing for us. We call them buoys. There's different types of infrastructure and sensors that we put on them to measure things. And then we're going to talk about what are they measuring. And then I think we're going to try to characterize what are we learning from the information that comes from that. And uh, maybe Bob Fleming, you can start by by kind of painting an audio picture, if you could, for the listeners about what does this infrastructure look like? And if they're mariners or fishermen or recreators, how would they know what they see if they encounter it out there on the water well sure paul the the go moose buoys we see in the gulf of maine are uh, they're about four meters 12 feet tall um bright bright yellow you'll see the words uh odas for ocean data acquisition system and there's a phone number on there to call if you see a problem and we'd, we'd appreciate that um you'll see them bobbing gently they've got a, a tower on top of a large uh, yellow float that contains uh, all manner of aerials. We got instruments on there, uh, a wide variety of meteorological se- uh, sensors. Uh, we've also got, uh, I guess, more importantly, a lot of a lot of gear below the waterline that, that that you don't see. Uh, so, I mean, that's th- that's what you th- that's the the uh, the external appearance of one of these one of these buoys. Right, and they're they're big. They're like the size of a navigational aid. Yeah, these are about. Uh, uh, eight feet across, uh, good good size. Uh, the, the base of those, the float. So. Yeah, David. I wonder if uh, I mean, there's other kinds of infrastructure too that is being used to make observations. These buoys are kind of static, but they've been emerging in terms of their size and how we can either move them or not. But then there's also other sorts of uh, technology that's being used in different places. We should just yeah. say a few words about that. Yeah, these these buoys have been out there for what, 14, 15 years or so. Um, We're adding new sensors to them all the time to measure different things, but there's another group of buoys that that I'm involved with uh, put out by a group from Woods Hole Oceanographic. We've been working together on red tides here in the Gulf of Maine and on the Maine coast for a long time. And so they've developed, um, along with the Monterey Bay Research Institute, um, a buoyed sensor system that's more or less like a... Uh, molecular biology lab in a can where they're able to collect a water sample and look at the DNA of the cells that they collect and determine whether or not the red tide organism, uh, toxic dinoflagellate, is present or not. And we just uh, two weeks ago picked up three of these buoys that have been out all summer and they have been seeing red tide organisms sitting offshore and fortunately they did not come ashore which would have required a northeast wind to blow them in. So the coast has been pretty clean all summer. The Maine Department of Marine Resources has been monitoring uh, for paralytic shellfish poisoning all summer. They do a phenomenal job. And we've been fortunate that those cells are sitting harmlessly offshore, although I suppose they're not really harmless because whatever does eat them could be affected out there. Um, on the buoys that we have in the Gulf, the yellow ones that, that Bob was, was talking about, uh, just last year we 
we got a new grant from the um, uh, from NOAA to put nitrate uh, sensors. Nitrate is a uh, nitrogen nutrient necessary for algal growth, and we're starting to get some interesting results um, off those buoys now that help us to interpret the different water masses in the Gulf and how they may control plankton, red tides, and hopefully one day how fisheries are, are right. controlled. So the the I will call it spatial array, let's say where these things end up being in the Gulf of Maine are relatively dispersed. The things that you're talking about are very specialized machines and are generally offshore. Um, Damien, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the programming that we're hoping to do that brings some of that technology a little closer to shore and um, and how those other um, tools might be more nimble and more um, you know, paying attention to a different set of questions. Sure. Um, so the, as uh, Dave and Bob mentioned, um, the buoys that are offshore that the physical oceanography group maintains are very, very large. Um, but as we move inshore into some of these more protected areas, we have the ability to, to put out some uh, buoys that are a little bit smaller. Um, and those buoys that sort of one of the main differences between those buoys and, and the buoys offshore is they're designed, they're called LOBOs, which stands for Land, Ocean, Biogeochemistry, uh, Observatories. And those that biogeochemistry stands for all the biological activity that is derived from the stuff coming off the land. So that's why they're called Land, Ocean. Uh, so all the nitrogen and particulates, so the little stuff coming off the watershed that gets into the water, and then how that influences the productivity of our water. So in this case, this is for a project that deals with aquaculture. So what is it that oysters eat in our nearshore environment, for instance? Uh, and we use these observatories to figure out the amount of food that's in the water for oysters. So they're a little bit different than the offshore uh, buoys in that they're sort of designed to measure particle-type stuff. Great. I wonder, before we get into some of what the data is telling us, let's elaborate a little bit more on what some of these sensors are, what we are measuring in the water column from both. Uh, I mean, in the past, as I understood it, uh, it was a lot of the physical oceanography that we could measure in the atmospheric interface with the ocean and how currents are moving and so forth. But we've we've moved into other kinds of sensors and optics and other sorts of things. So I don't know, Bob, if you want to describe what, what might be typically on one of these formerly GOMOOSE buoys, and uh, and Dave could follow up with a bit more about the red tide system. Sure, Paul. Uh, on the, so on, on the GOMOOSE buoys, uh, above the waterline, you see a, a, a complement of uh, meteorological instruments. We have a pair of uh, wind sensors that are redundant. Uh, we've had a lot of emphasis on trying to keep these buoys operational with, with as few gaps as possible in the record. And also a lot of emphasis on getting that data back in real time. So um, we have a pair of, pair of wind sensors. We have an atmospheric pressure sensor up there. Uh, we've got a visibility sensor, which gives us a pretty good indication of fog. Uh, we, we measure visibility out to, uh, out to three kilometers, so you can, you can uh, you know, see in real time what the conditions are out at one of the sites. Um, we also have in the well, we've got a, uh, a wave sensor that gives us, uh, we've got actually got a couple of different wave sensors that give us both uh, directional, the direction waves are coming from, the wave height, and the wave period to get a good idea of sea state out there at any, at any time. And of course, we have a temperature sensor up, up on the top on the well as well. Um, just below the, below the buoy, we have a, a, a string of uh, 
conductivity and temperature sensors that give us an idea of the, the salinity of the water and very precise temperature readings. Uh, those, those actually, we have those that, they, those are attached to the wire and we actually use the mooring wire. We use a half inch uh, mooring wire as our primary uh, cable. Uh, those actually communicate through the mooring wire. It's interesting. They use the seawater as a, as a return path. It's kind of innovative technology. It's called an inductive modem. Very slow, uh, very slow communication, but it allows us to actually uh, talk to these instruments in real time from a distance. So if we need to, to, to check the status of an instrument, check the calibration, set a clock, do anything, we can actually do that, which has is, which is really given us a lot more reliability and time and, you know, uh, a lot fewer gaps in our data stream. Additionally, we have a we have a Doppler current. We have a couple of current sensors. We have a single point current sensor right below the buoy that tells us the surface current. So it's given us a current at two meters depth, and it, it also measures temperature at the same time. So we get another temperature reading there. Um, on most of the buoys, we have these these other our CT sensors are at uh, we have them at uh, one meter, at twenty meters, and at fifty meter depths. And in some of the water the buoys in deeper water that we have we have additional buoys down to two hundred fifty meters depth. Um, Below the boot, we have a we have a Doppler profiler that gives us it actually gives us currents running all the way down through the water column. So uh, we'll get a, a generally a two meter we'll get currents every two meters or so below uh, below th- below four meters depth. We'll we'll get a get get actual real time uh, currents. We get this back we get this back hourly. Uh, all this data comes back hourly. Some of our surface data comes back uh, a little faster. Uh, additionally, we have some other sensors that we've added to the buoys. Over the years, we've had optical sensors that measure sunlight coming down, uh, impinging on the buoy from above, and, and uh, ocean color below, which tells us some, gives us some biological, some of the, some of the information is interested, of interest to biologists. Um, we also have, uh, we have, uh, the USGS has, has added some uh, transmissometers that, that, that uh, measure uh, the, the suspended particles in the water down deep. So they're, they're looking at the flows of sediment along the bottom of, of, uh, bottom of the, the, the ocean bottom. Um, and recently, we've added uh, nutrient sensors, a, a series of nutrient sensors, and I should let uh, I should let Dave uh, talk about those. And that's that's a project that he's deeply involved with. And yeah, so Dave, in addition to nitrates, are there other you know what are there other biological parameters we're able to measure? Well, way? there are, are uh, the uh, red tide sensors that I just talked about, but they're co- they're closely coupled to our measurement of the nitrogen in the water. We think that. Uh, there are different waters that come into the Gulf of Maine from offshore that will stimulate uh, growth of this red tide, more so in some years than others. And this year, for instance, when we, when we did see the cells offshore, we were able to predict that based on the characteristics of the water masses coming in, the temperature, the salinity, but more, most importantly, the nitrogen. And uh, that's only been made possible um, this year. And hopefully into the future, we have a cruise going out. I think it's September 13, right? Yep. yep. And we're going to be... Uh, turning some buoys around and adding nine more of these nitrogen sensors. We also have fluorometers, which measure chlorophyll fluorescence, which is a measure of the biomass of the plankton in the water, the the phytoplankton, the photosynthetic algae. And um, hopefully we're going to get some more information on that this this coming year. Great. I I want to... I should probably add, we've also got uh, at least one of the buoys that's funded in part by uh, the Massachusetts uh, Water Water Resources Authority. Uh, we've got dissolved oxygen sensors at several 
several deaths as well. So that's a lot of information. You're uh, you're tuned to WERU at Community Radio. Thanks for listening this morning. The program is called Coastal Conversations. It happens once a month here talking about coastal issues. And uh, this is Paul Anderson. I'm hosting the program until 10. I have uh, four esteemed scientists from the University of Maine joining me, a couple here in the studio and, and uh, two on the phone. And uh, we're we're setting the stage here, and we'll take your calls uh, probably in fifteen or twenty minutes. We'll we'll make a, a phone line open and allow you to ask these gentlemen some uh, questions about what we're talking about. I I want to try to bring Bob Stanick into this, and Bob, I know we're going to get more into some of the biological questions and what this data is telling us in a moment. But you do a lot of work, as do all of you in other places of the world, and um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the other kinds of technology beyond these static buoys and so forth that we know that the marine science and oceanographic community is using, and I'm talking about ROVs and even satellite kinds of things, um, just to acknowledge that there are other ways to get these kinds of data into the into the mix. Can you explain some of that? Sure. Well, there is an awful lot of, um, uh, I suppose one way to think about this is uh, there is a range from uh, global uh, to very, very local, uh, and you got the sense uh, from Damien on that. And uh, these things are not entirely independent. Uh, right now we see uh, water pooling up uh, in the Pacific uh, via satellite images that uh, suggest that we're into a, a relatively large El Nino, and by no means are El Nino impacts uh, constrained uh, just to um, uh, the Pacific. As a matter of fact, uh, this one is very similar to the one that uh, we had in 1997 and 1998. For those of us who study coral reefs, uh, something close to 60% of the world's coral reefs suffered a bleaching event, uh, which is due to unusually warm temperature, which was a result of that El Nino. Um, many people in Maine are concerned about that because that also, 1998, was the year of the big ice storm. And you know, are those things related? Uh, we don't know for sure. But um, so obviously there are global things going on uh, that uh, affect uh, ecosystems everywhere. Uh, and so we are looking at a very specific uh, set of patterns uh, here on the coast of Maine. And as, uh, as you indicated, we use a variety of techniques. Uh, many people have been using simple scuba diving to get down to, you know, roughly the upper 60 feet of the seafloor. But we also have remotely operated vehicles and, uh, and submarines that will get, take us right to uh, virtually any place in the Gulf of Maine. And uh, from this, we start seeing very interesting patterns. Uh, we were doing some work uh, relatively recently looking at um, the, uh, wh- whether the impact to uh, some of the proposed wind energy project. And as a part of that project, we were noticing some really remarkable features like Acadian redfish, um, which is a species that uh, could be used for restaurant uh, food, but it was often used for bait. Um, We're extremely habitat specific. We're only found over rock substrates and not over any sediment substrates. We were seeing the distribution of lobsters. We were seeing a halibut and uh, and also scallop populations that are changing along the coast of Maine. Uh, so we actually can get very good information, and of course it's real time using these tools that really span from global to very specific local. 
Great. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Um, so this is a lot of information, and, and we're hearing from both biological marine science perspectives on what you know critters are in the water. But uh, the, the really neat thing that I find about you know, blending different types of oceanographic studies across biological and chemical and physical spectrums is the interrelationship of um, all of these factors and how they drive life on the planet and and tell us what's going on around us in terms of our community's health and the resilience of these systems. Um, I wonder if we should shift to a few examples of what it's telling us, Dave. What are the trends telling us? And and talk a bit about long-term signals that, you know, know, we have the GOMUS for 15 years, but there's other atmospheric data for decades. And then what's the difference between a long-term trend and what we're observing today, and how do we know the difference of what that matters? Well, our our colleague up in Orono, Andy Thomas, has been monitoring satellite sea surface temperatures in the Gulf of Maine um, and that record, I believe, goes back some 30 years. And there is a long-term trend where the Gulf of Maine, like the rest of the world ocean, is getting warmer as a result of global warming. Um, so we're, we're looking at that more closely with these subsurface buoys. And uh, we've, we've just uh, finished a study that came out a few months ago that showed that some of this uh, warming, uh, these episodes of warmer and cooler water, are controlled more by waters that come in from offshore along the bottom. And we seem to be in a phase in the recent decades where we're seeing more of this, which which I and, and some of my colleagues believe is related to meltwaters in the Arctic that are increasing the coastal flow down Labrador, um, across the Nova Scotia Shelf, and coming into the Gulf of Maine, both along the bottom and at the surface. And so those are very important to temperature fluctuations we're seeing, and uh, we're partly responsible for the extreme warming we saw in 2012. Uh, there were other factors as well, of course. But uh, it's interesting that it isn't just the temperature of the water that these different flows affect. It's the nutrients that they bring in. And we seem to be uh, witnessing these good – well, there's never a good year for red tide, I guess, but with these, these uh, years in which red tide organisms bloom – uh, extensively offshore in response to the, the nature of the nutrient loads in these waters. And then there are other years. Uh, 2010, for example, is a year we were doing surveys with our group at Woods Hole. We didn't see any red tide out there at all until very late in the year when the water masses changed again and we saw the nutrients coming in. So that's the value of the nutrient sensors on these buoys. But also the temperature and salinity uh, is useful for monitoring how these temperature fluctuations we're seeing in the Gulf may be controlled by more offshore kinds of things. And, of course, we're all watching the shrimp fishery, hoping it comes back. There's some concern that as waters get warmer on the bottom, they're going to leave or be gone. And so very important. Yeah, I'd add, uh, in addition to the long-term signals, um, even in the short term, we see how these uh, – we see how the physical oceanography and the biology is really coupled. For example, they're – a couple of our buoys, we've got uh, the buoy off uh, Mount Desert Island and uh, the, the buoy just just uh, off Monhegan. Uh, we can compare those. We actually use those as something of an early warning indicator for, uh, you know, seasonal risk of uh, these har- harmful algal blooms or red tides. Uh, you know, and trying to – we have this coupled current system, and we can actually compare the current measurements, and, and, is, and the, the wind could, winds make a big – play a big role too, but – but if a given season, if we have a tightly coupled current, in other words, the currents flow from from down east on down uh, continuously, uh, and we see strong currents at buoy E, we'll, we'll tend to we'll tend to have a higher risk of, of moving this, uh, you know, these uh, these harmful algal blooms inshore in the southern parts of the 
southern and western parts of the Gulf of Maine. And so, so uh, a lot of this is tied together, and, and we use them on, you know, we use these these tools in, in, as both long-term and short-term indicators. So, Great. Um, I know, Bob Stenick, you're, you're only with us for a few more minutes here, and uh, I want to give you a chance to talk a bit about some of the stuff that you've done, a lot of research around, uh, you know, biota and uh, ecosystem change and the relationship to what we're both measuring in this setting with water column and other kinds of OBS, but also, you know, if you want to take a few minutes and talk about some of the relationships of different organisms and how this affects ecosystems and, and what you've been observing. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story, and it, and it fits in very well with what we just heard. Um, you know, as, as you know, the temperature of the water has generally uh, been trending upward uh, for quite a long time now. And one of the advantages is that this has improved the conditions for lobsters. There's sort of a temperature sweet spot that uh, has moved along the coast of Maine as these waters warm. Um, even since I came to the University of Maine, we saw a shift from the most active harbors being down in Casco Bay to the mid-coast to Penobscot and currently Stonington. Um, now, of course, the long-term trend, one has to be concerned whether there's going to be a time when uh, lobsters will not maintain the abundance they have now. But talking about real-time changes, a lot of people look at the ocean and they think it's something that simply just doesn't change very much. And Dave alluded to the fact that 2012 was an unusually warm year. It really was. And uh, one of the things that happened was uh, apparently the bottom water was particularly warm. And lobsters, um, they, uh, they're shedding. They molt uh, and grow uh, by, based on water temperature. And when the water temperature was unusually warm in April of 2012, Many lobsters suddenly shed into a harvestable size. Lobstermen started realizing this. There was an incredible scramble to harvest lobsters, and there was a big glut of lobsters at a time when actually the domestic market was poor. Distribution had to go up to Canada, uh, and uh, the, the Canadian distributors didn't really want to be flooded by cheap Maine lobsters. It became an international issue, and it's all based on a temperature uh, anomaly that uh, we simply didn't see coming. And uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, getting a sense of general trends, but also specific ones, really matter. And another factor that happened uh, the same year, it, we've had green crabs. Uh, they're a non-native species, came from Europe. They arrived in, to the Gulf of Maine in the 1800s, but they've been temperature constrained uh, because typically the water temperatures in, in Maine are, are, are really cooler than they thrive in. And in 2012, they were able to reproduce uh, much earlier in the summer. Uh, their offspring were relatively large. They overwintered. We have a, had a warm winter that year. Green crabs exploded, and suddenly the soft-shell uh, clams, the steamers, started getting eaten by the green crabs in record numbers. As a matter of fact, our edible blue mussel in the intertidal zone virtually disappeared statewide. And all of this was due to a, an oceanographic heat wave, uh, again, one we didn't see coming, but the consequences of it were pretty huge for a lot of people uh, who make a living uh, and like eating seafood along the coast of Maine. Oh. It's amazing how it all gets tied together. <laughs> That's why I love marine science. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate that. And thank you for joining us. If I'm not mistaken, it's your birthday. I wish you a happy <laughs> birthday. And uh, enjoy your weekend. I think we'll let you go on that line, and we'll open up a line. So we'll see Bye -bye. you around campus. Yep.
Uh, so, listeners, you're listening to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We do this about once a month. This slot every Friday is filled with some exciting and tantalizing locally produced talk program. This one that happens once a month takes a look at the issues that are facing us here along our coast. And today we're very much in a in a wet sp- spell. We're talking about the water itself, what's in the water and what's going on with change. How do we measure that? And what are some of the tools and technologies that we're using to keep track of that as we... Um, as uh, our ecosystem fluctuates. You can call us and join the conversation if you'd like. We'll be here until 10 o'clock. The phone number uh, to get to us is 1-866-625-9378. That's 866-625-9378. Dr. Bob Stanek just left us. He was here for the first half hour. Dr. Damien Brady is on the phone with us. I think he's in uh, New York somewhere. Thanks for joining us, Damien. In the studio, I have Dr. David Townsend uh, from the School of Marine Sciences and Dr. Bob Fleming from uh, up at the Orono campus. Um, All marine scientists working in this arena in different ways and um, helping us to understand what's going on in our coastal ecosystems. Damien, I wonder, as, as Dave was talking about some of the flux that's going on, you know, water is coming in from the offshore and the Labrador currents and the Arctic melt. That story is fascinating. You, you've you brought a, an interesting compliment to the University of Maine as you arrived with your history and work in estuary systems. And, um, okay, uh, before I ask you this question, though, Damien, we have a call coming in. It's, I think it's Catherine from Appleton. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I was privileged yesterday to hear a spouting whale right off the Duck Trap Northport area, about 30 feet out. Might that have been a minky or a finback? Any cetacean expertise in the group? Uh, I would I would guess minky only yeah. because when I was out there a couple of weeks ago, we saw quite a few minky whales. Nice. I'm not sure when the fins arrive, but I know they're very, very common here, as you know. Yes, I do. And the other thing I wanted to ask was, <clears throat> since our planet has one big ocean, and they're all connected, with the disaster that's going on in the Pacific Ocean, which I'm sure you are keenly aware of, um, from the uh, melted, melted, uh, yeah. you know, the uh, Fukushima. Fukushima, exactly. Yeah. And um, if you go to enenews.com or it's on Facebook, that's a compilation of articles all over the coast um, about the mortality rates. I would like to know how, if you are sensing anything, if you're even getting grant money to do it, because apparently it's pretty quiet out there about this in our mainstream news, um, how long would it take for that, for that, horror in the ocean to get to to Maine, really? A long, long time. Um, The oceans have residence times that are on the order of a thousand years. So the surface waters in the Pacific Ocean, which is almost half the planet, uh, circulate north of the equator in a big clockwise current system called a gyre. So what we've started to see is materials and 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 things in the water from Japan, ultimately making their way over to the North American shoreline. But it has a long way to go, and it needs to get into deep water and then pass through the Indian Ocean and then into the North Atlantic Ocean, um, 
before we're going to see it here in the Gulf of Maine. I don't believe any of us will be alive. Now, in the atmosphere, that's is another question. I have oh, no idea. I, I'm keenly aware of yeah. that. I've been following it since March 11, 2011. Okay, well, um, got to enjoy our moments. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Bye. Appreciate that uh, call. Uh, one thing we did do immediately after Fukushima, we did some relatively cursory but um, important investigations of our seaweed here along the coast and had had some scientists from both UMaine and other institutions who wanted to take some samples knowing that I th- if I understand my biology correctly that some of the seaweeds that take up iodine and are and that's an important part of their um, composition that that as a radionuclide in the atmosphere could move around the planet um, relatively quickly and that you might pick it up, those kinds of signals. And at that point, we did not, had not seen anything. That was a number of years ago. Damon, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think Dave uh, summarized that, that really well. I think the atmospheric piece and how that links to the ocean, that's a, that, that, that really is the other the, the black box in the room, when I think, when it comes to that kind of transport. So, um, again, listeners, thanks for that call. And if you'd like to join us, the number is 866-625-9378. We may have a call coming in. Damien, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about um, whether it's a distinction or not. It's a different dynamic in terms of modeling estuaries and understanding the the ocean influence versus the land-based influence. And you had done some work in the Chesapeake region, and now here in Maine, you're starting to help us get to know some of our estuaries. Yeah, I, and my primary interest is in land-sea coupling. So what is it that we do in our watersheds, and then how does that affect our, our very near shore um, uh, and estuarine habitats? Uh, you know, estuaries just being an area where freshwater and marine waters tend to mix. Um, and I think uh, uh, Dave and Bob made a great point about some of the changes that we're seeing out in the Gulf of Maine. You know, we're seeing a lot of changes in our watersheds over time, you know, whether that's the reforesting of the entire, you know, uh, main watershed um, to some of the climate, you know, related effects. There's a, a great, uh, great historical reconstructions, for instance, that uh, people go into town offices all over these little small towns in Maine and find out when the lake ice out dates have changed and have really demonstrated some really big changes even over the last 50 years and when our lakes um, ice out now. And I think everyone in Maine has a story of some body of water they used to be able to walk across in March, but, you know, no longer. Um, and that's had some real effects, you know, downstream. Uh, we at the Darling Marine Center in Walpole near Damariscotta uh, in 1967 to 1977, a professor named Bernie McAuliffe was out there twice a week measuring temperature off the dock. And we've compared that now with a time series that we run at the Darling Marine Center for the last 15 years. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty uh, across-the-board uh, one to two degree uh, temperature change that have taken, you know that that have possibly occurred in our estuaries, and you know for some species there's going to be winners and losers. For oysters, that's uh, that can add weeks to the growing time for an aquaculturist, for instance, on either side, and and some species you might pass a physiological threshold. So we're really interested in how the ocean and how watershed processes are changing our estuaries, making them more or less. Uh, suitable for for the species that we really value. Great, thank you. We do have a call from Joe in Rockland. Joe, good morning. Hi, good, good morning. Thanks for taking the call. An interesting program, which I'm in and out of the car catching pieces of. Okay. And one of the pieces I heard was a speaker just a bit ago talking about how the temperature changes back in 2012 and the green crab 
explosion that occurred. And but he kept using the phrase, uh, the phrase, and that one caught us off guard. So my question is, had they been aware, or had they been the scientists been able to predict or be more on top of these temperature changes? What what would they have done? What what? So if you know this is coming, what what can you do? And I'll take it off the air. Thanks, Thanks Joe. Good question. <laughs> That's a great there might question. there may be some uh, uh, some other people on the line that have answers to that. But you know, Brian Beal at the University of Maine and Machias has shown you know, sort of time and time again that if you put netting over soft shell clam beds, for instance, and you can really limit predation um, and get a lot of productivity. Uh, you know, he shows that time and time again along the coast. So I think there are, if they know it's going to happen, there are things that people can do to mitigate that. And, um, you know, we often talk about it for the lobster industry. Uh, if you know you're going to deluge the market, for instance, can you control price? Or uh, will you not make that investment in uh, a new boat if you knew that the fishery might decline in the future? So there are mitigating things you can do. I realize that, you know, on some level, it's, uh, it might be easy to say, well, things are going to change and we all have to adapt to them. Um, but there, there are things you can do if you, if you feel like you know what's going to happen. Well, in some ways, we did see it coming in 2012. Uh, we know now from retrospective uh, analyses that uh, the previous year, the, the warming in 2012 actually started in 2011 in the fall. And uh, the waters were much warmer than, than they had been in the past. And we had a very mild winter uh, in the winter of 2011-2012. And so the stage was set for very warm water anyway. But if we had looked very closely at the buoys offshore, we would have seen that there was a period of the last few years prior to that of this very, not very, but warm, salty water coming in from offshore along the bottom, which affected the temperature of the Gulf of Maine. And uh, Henry Bigelow, uh, more than 100 years ago, uh, former uh, first director of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and considered the father of modern oceanography, uh, told us that uh, the warming that we see in the springtime in the Gulf of Maine is affected as much by what happens beneath the surface as what happens at the surface with atmospheric heat flux. And so we should have seen it coming uh, and made, made predictions. But another thing happened in the spring of 2012 that we can't really predict very well now, and that's this influx of, of this very cold, ironically, uh, surface layer that came in from Nova Scotia, but it's also very fresh. And in this particular year, it resided right at the surface in the top 20 meters and didn't extend down to 50 meters as we'd seen in the past. So that was a, that allowed the water to simply float there, and then the warm atmospheric input of heat uh, tended to make those surface waters warmer. And it's those surface waters offshore that mix to the bottom inshore that affect the bottom environment of lobsters and, and uh, crabs and so forth that we're talking about. So we, di- we did see it coming. We just didn't put the pieces together to see what the impacts would be. Yeah. Well, it's a great question, Joe. And, and you know, it's one of the challenges we face in any scientific enterprise as we try to gain new information and knowledge and try to influence policy and, and behavioral change. Do we adapt? Do we mitigate? How can we stop change? Well, we're also a resilient um, people and a planet and uh we have to somehow rely on our ecosystems to um to adapt that in that natural fashion but it brings to mind bob a story you were telling earlier about what can we do with this technology proactively to 
get a sense of uh, a, a, an upcoming event. And we have one blooming right now. You want to talk a bit about what we learned from Sandy and what you guys are involved with with the hurricane? Yeah, sure, Paul. Uh, like I mentioned this, this morning, we were anxiously checking the uh, progress of uh, Tropical Storm Erica down uh, just just crossing over the Virgin Islands right now, uh, or a little earlier this morning. Uh, we're wondering whether it's going to blossom into a hurricane. The, the forecast, the models that forecast hurricane tracks and intensity are all over the place. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a bit of uncertainty that, uh, that we dealt with, with Hurricane Sandy. It was a very expensive storm, and uh, the modelers were, again, caught off guard. And this is a case where, as the caller mentioned, uh, you know, we can't change the hurricane, and we can't, we can't change the physical events that are happening, but we can try to adjust our sails and, and uh, you know, respond to them a little quicker. So uh, after, after Sandy, uh, there's a program that uh, uh, actually Congress gave us a little prodding to, and uh, there's, there's a, a research group that was put together with uh, uh, the University of Maine and, and Woods Hole and uh, Rutgers University down in New Jersey and the University of Maryland, because uh, a fair bit of damage was suffered in the coastal areas here. And predominantly, we're looking at coastal inundation and seeing if we can Im- improve the, uh, the prediction of storm intensities. Uh, once a hurricane's established, the, the track of the hurricane's models tend to do pretty well once they're established and headed towards the coast. We sort of know, we can sort of predict where they're going to go. But, but the, the strengthening and weakening of the storm is, is just the area of big uncertainty. So what, what we've done is we have a, a program involving uh, modelers who are, you know, working on their models, and we're trying to get some, some real-time observational data out in the water before the storms hit. And we developed a set of small-scale buoys that can be, uh, be handled in a small boat and rapidly put in the water in different places, uh, you know, put out, and hopefully they will survive a large storm and uh, give us some, some information about uh, water levels uh, and local conditions. Uh, the information to feed to the modelers to get a to get a better uh, get a better picture of, of how the storm is building up and what's going to happen, particularly in terms of coastal flooding. So that's that's kind of the focus. We're also as part of that, we're flying some vehicles, uh, something we haven't really talked about, but we've got these autonomous vehicles, gliders. Uh, they're released right before the storm too, and they actually uh, check for the the. I mean the 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 interest here is in finding a pool of warm water that might actually feed and, and allow a hurricane to in, intensify. So uh, Now, they fly in the water. Yeah, they're underwater. <laughs> I'm sorry, we say fly because they're gliders. Yeah, these are buoyancy-driven. They don't have propeller or a motor. These are uh, little underwater vehicles that are autonomous, and they can stay out for weeks and even months at a time. So, And they send back data uh, periodically. We get, we get data back from them every two or three hours during a storm. So. That's cool. So that's us adapting to uh, potential disaster, trying to help uh, preparedness, emergency response, and that so, sort of thing with these technologies. So, so the group in Orono is ready to act on Monday, as early as Monday, to deploy these buoys. Is that right? Yeah, actually, the dis- I think the decision's probably been made. I missed the call this morning, but uh, we will uh, we'll be putting a if, if if the storm looks like it's coming up this way, uh, we'll we'll be putting a buoy in the water off of. Uh, down off Hampton Bay in, in New Hampshire, we've got one in the water already off Sacco, and we'll be releasing a glider down uh, down in Sacco Bay that's going to head up that heads offshore across the shelf and looks for warmer water. And and the the staffs at uh, at Huey down at Woods Hole and in uh, Maryland and, and New Jersey will be doing the same thing. So it's a, you know, a big mobilization. We're kind of just testing out the system, but we built a whole new generation of buoys, uh, you know, new communications. Different sensors. They're smaller. It was a, it was an interesting project. We just got to try to wrap that up. So, 
That's really cool. So it does bring the question. You named the word Congress, and I think Catherine earlier talked about the the issue of what are these enabling conditions for getting this stuff and funding these things and helping to make sure that we're we're both ahead of the ahead of the game and learning the tools and technologies from a research perspective, but also making sure we have the academic training grounds uh, well established and sustained so that we can create next generation of scientists. Where do these funds come from? You want to talk about IUS and what that intent is? And I don't know, Dave, you could... Yeah, IUS is a, a NOAA program, stands for the Integrated Ocean Observing System, and it's a nationwide, worldwide, really, uh, program of monitoring the oceans and the atmospheres. It's uh, the, the grant that we got for these nitrogen sensors was was an IUS uh, grant. Um, these are very expensive. E- each one with its battery pack and communication system is on the order of thirty thousand dollars, and we're putting nine or is it nine or eleven, Bob? We're putting out in September something like that. I can't remember now uh, that are ready to go, and it's very very expensive. And we're not sure um, if we will be able to get more money to continue the operation beyond the three-year duration of this grant. Federal funds are hard to get, and we'll just see if we come up with results that are interesting enough to stimulate interest in NOAA. Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, the trend over the years, is, as uh, the caller mentioned and, and as we've seen, is, is uh, decreasing budgets. And I mean, for us, the innovative thing about the, the buoy array when we put it in was that uh, it was getting this real-time data back. Uh, that was that was innovative at the time. And uh, also the reliability that we had. We were able, enabled to ensure that by having a comp- – we had a complete set of buoys. If we had a problem with a buoy, it was damaged or we lost a suite of instruments – we could usually respond within a week or two, get out and bring a fully functional buoy out and simply pick the old one up, bring it back, repair it, and put the new one in place. And as cuts have gone, and we also, we also did a complete turnaround on our buoys every, every six months. And that kept a very high level of uh, operational readiness. So we had these very continuous, robust time, uh, time series of this information coming back in real time. And we, we, by and large, kept that going. But we've, we've in our cuts, uh, we've, we've, we're down to five people now in our group. And at some point, there's a certain little critical mass we have to keep in place to keep things running. But we've, uh, we've actually, we're, we're changing out our buoys every year instead of every six months, which, which is a really big engineering challenge. It's tough. Uh, the ocean delivers a lot of hard knocks through the winter. And a year out in the water is usually a, it usually uh, exacts a toll on the equipment. Um, we're, we are... Uh, We've also had to reduce the number of buoys we had. As part of the reorganization from uh, the original Go, Go Moose to Nearcoos, we're down to uh, seven buoys, seven Nearcoos buoys in the Gulf. And uh, and it's really some outside programs. Uh, we maintain an array of buoys down in the Caribbean. That's a separate source of funding from, you know, outside the Gulf of Maine. Uh, we have sold buoys for different organizations, uh, a research group down in Mexico, uh, uh, in addition to some other smaller smaller buoy projects. So, you know, we're trying to keep keep going that way. Um, we've received some funding from the Maine uh, Technology Institute, which is very, very significant funding to buy some of these uh, underwater vehicles. Uh, so, and, and, you know, we're finding that partnerships with other organizations is, is, is kind of where we're looking at in the future. That's what we're going to have to do. We're going to all start working together a little more closely. Um, and in, in our case, in the Physical Oceanography Group, we really need to bring some more students on board. I think that's one of the things, one of our goals is to, is to get some students involved, have some graduate students doing some research. And... Uh, and you know, sort of move out from there. Great. Damien, I wonder if you can just 
chime in a little bit about what the the new CNET project at UMaine can help to uh, enable in terms of some of the nearshore interests that you have with infrastructure. Yeah, uh, so all these uh, uh, all the buoys that we're deploying obviously have different objectives, and um, the objectives of, uh, of Bob's program are very different than the objectives of the CNET program. And CNET stands for Sustainable Ecological Aquaculture. Um, and so the idea here is um, can we do uh, siting in a way that makes aquaculture more sustainable along the coast of Maine? And that can be uh, sea vegetable aquaculture, oysters, mussels, uh, salmon, everything that we're growing along the coast. Um, and so the objectives of that program become a little bit different. Um, and, you know, for the most part, our interest is uh, can we put these in areas that have the, the most amount of economic development gain for aquaculture at the least amount of, uh, of impact for anyone who lives within the community. Um, and it's a really integrated program. So those buoys uh, and that information that we get about estuarine productivity feeds to aquaculturists, um, but it also feeds to social scientists who uh, will take that information and some of the site selection decisions that go along with them uh, and determine what are the, the best courses of action, not just for an aquaculturist, but for the community that the aquaculturist lives in and works in. Great. Thank you. So um, I want to acknowledge for the listeners that we're throwing a lot of jargon around here, and, and we live in a world of acronyms, and uh, apologies for that. I will remind you that after the program, this this program will be available by podcast on the WERU website. And if you go to the Coastal Conversations link, um, you will you'll end up at the main Sea Grant site where there are links to our, our guests' pages, their web pages, and, uh, and in, on the Internet. You can access images of what we're talking about, these, these, uh, these buoys and the infrastructure. But more importantly, you can also access some of the data and some of it is, that's coming off these buoys in real time. Uh, many of our mariners and stakeholders along the coast who have gotten to know these programs will flip on the Niracoos website in the morning and check out what's going on before they decide to go fish or to, to go uh, sailing. And uh, so there's, there's real quality and um, uh, important, timely information available through the Internet for the programs that we're talking about today. For example, NIRACUS is, a, is an acronym, and I'll just explain that it's the northeast region of the Coastal Ocean Observing System. So that's what NIRACUS means. The Coastal Ocean Observing System, enabled by NOAA funding and probably other funding, is a piece of the IUS that David mentioned a moment ago. And uh, there are regional associations all around the nation for trying to coordinate the many different interests in this kind of technology. And our NIRACUS leadership is based right now at the University of New Hampshire, I think. And um, is that where they are? Well, they're, not, they're in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but they're not affiliated with the university. Okay, thanks for that clarification. Yeah. Um, but very much the NIRACUS is, is a... a um, portal for a lot of this kind of information yeah and uh so i would urge listeners and, and those of you who are working recreating and living here on the coast who want to see some of this information to go out and find that on the internet um we are we have a few more minutes here on the program i'll remind you that the phone number is 866-625-9378 if you'd like to call and, and ask a question i have in the studio with me dave townsend from up at the University of Maine in Orono, and Bob Fleming, also working out of Orono, and on the phone, Damian Brady. Um, 
I wondered, um, in a general sense, if we talk about the, the science and, and the, the way that this fits into the overall science that a university and other institutions conduct, um, f- for me, it's linking observations, what we see around us, and then measuring that somehow, and then being able to understand it. So you have to analyze that, and then being able to respond to it and so mm-hmm. forth. So for me, that's the continuum of information that we're gaining here and why it should matter. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the academic side of this and how are we generating interest from our student body? How's enrollment going up there? Uh, well, as you know, classes begin at the University of Maine Orono on Monday. I teach my large 300-student class on Tuesday and looking forward to it. And I do try to bring some of these data streams into the classroom whenever I can to show them what's going on. This year we'll talk about certainly uh, hurricane, the hurricane coming up the coast perhaps, certainly El Nino, but we also give give assignments where the students will go to the website that Bob has been talking about uh, to look at some of the data, see if they can uh, figure out what's going on. Graduate theses are based on a lot of these data. I've, I've, one of my graduate students is working on a problem related to this now. Uh, but as professors, we are constantly trying to bring our research into the classroom on the one hand, but also to develop research opportunities for graduate students and train, as you mentioned earlier, the next generation of scientists. Great. We have a call from Appleton, this uh, Catherine in Appleton. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you to these stewards. Um, for, yeah, really. I, I didn't tur- Let me turn my radio down. Are you back? Catherine, hello? I don't know. She's. I think we're gone. But thank you for that that acknowledgement. Uh, part of the piece that I I was trying to say about observations is really that we I believe we all of us have a, a role in watching what's going on around us. And you know I say when I talk about climate change to groups that I talk to that the the view that you have out your window in the morning is very different from what our grandparents had when they were young people and will be very different from what our grandchildren will see when they're older folks. And that change that's happening around us is very much real. And uh, I think we have a lot of programs that we've done here in Maine, and we've been a real real, real um, pioneer in helping citizens to get involved in, in observations and monitoring and, and understanding what's going around um, uh, around us, and then getting the science community to help us understand what that means is really important. Is Catherine back on the line? Yes. Hi. We lost you a moment. Yes, yes, yes. Just quickly, I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Because of because of the kind of human beings you are, the care you have given your life to this science because of your compelling curiosity and to give us all of this. And just thank you for being the stewards. I just really appreciate it. That's all. I just wanted to say that. Well, thank you. Okay, bye. Appreciate that. Yeah, so we, we do get paid, and, and it's also fun. So we have a couple of motivations in addition to being just interested stewards. <laughs> yes. Um, we're about to wrap up. Do we have one more call, Amy? No? Okay, we're good. Um, well, you've been listening to Coastal Conversations this morning. I want to thank you for joining us here at WERU. Thank you for supporting and listening to Community Radio. Um, Coastal Conversations airs every month, and one of us from the Sea Grant team will be your host. And I want to thank Dave Townsend, Bob Fleming, Bob Stenick, and Damian Brady for joining me this morning. Um, 
thanks also to those of you who listened and called with your questions. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine. We bring marine science to Maine people. You can join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And on the second Friday of each month, you can still catch Talk of the Towns and the longstanding WERU Public Affairs Program that helped to inspire this Coastal Conversations program. The show's theme music is called A Following Sea. That was composed and performed by me. Um, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Paul Anderson from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. WERU comes from our listeners and from the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport with Exploring the Magic of Photography, an exhibit from the museum's collection of 